It's great to be back. Uh, we had a great vacation in New Brunswick. Absolutely no problems at all on the border. Um, there wasn't even a checkpoint going in New Brunswick, so just came down off the bridge. It was nice and sunny and got to see my family for the first time in almost a year. So we had a, a great trip. It was great to be home. Before I left, we wrapped up a 10-week series on the letter to the Philippians, which means that it's now time to start something new. And I'm really excited about this new series that we're going to be beginning called I Am. And you may have noticed I'm really fancy this time because I have a PowerPoint. <laughs> Throughout the course of his ministry, Jesus made seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John that related directly to his character, his divinity, and his mission. And we're going to be spending seven weeks this summer studying those statements to learn more about the nature of Jesus. Now, I'm especially excited about this series because we won't be doing it alone. We're going to be partnering this series with a sister church in Nova Scotia, the South Range Christian Church. And so every week, I'll be studying these uh, statements with Josh Stevenson, who's the pastor there. Uh, so essentially, you'll be getting two heads studying together for the price of one which is a great deal, I think. But we're both really excited about it. Uh, that's Paul Stevenson's son, by the way. He's preached here in the past. Um, so we're going to be bringing uh, different perspectives into our study uh, and kind of helps us to both uh, look at all the different facts and, and bounce ideas off each other. Uh, and of course, as we will be both bringing different perspectives, I also recommend that if you want to dig in further through the week, uh, you should check out his sermons as well, which will be posted online on their uh, Facebook page and website uh, if you want to dig in further to these statements through the summer. If you've ever heard anyone talk about the statement, I am, in a sermon or a study before, you will know that it is a phrase that holds deep spiritual significance. And if you haven't heard this name before, I think you're going to find it really interesting because it's not just a phrase, it's actually the name of God. We have many names for God. In our society today, we mostly just refer to him as God, but as we know, that is, um, we use it as a specific name for our God with a capital G, but it's also, uh, in English, it's just a generic term for God. So, like I say, when we say it, we mean it as a name for a specific God, but I can also use it as a description. I can say, we worship the God of Abraham. Others worship other gods with a lowercase g. So it's kind of a generic term that we use uh, most of the time. Now, there's been many names through history that have referred to our God over the generations. In Hebrew, he's been called Elohim, which is creator, Adonai, which is Lord, and El Shaddai, which is Almighty, and many others. However, there's one name that God takes on himself when he appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus. It's a name that Jews to this day consider too holy to utter. And to use the name in Jesus' day was considered blasphemy and punishable by stoning. As they considered using this name to be taking it in vain. Every time in your Bible that this word is used, it is translated as Lord with all uppercase letters. So L-O-R-D, all uppercase. Every time you see that in your Bible, that is this name. And it was written like this because it was considered too holy to speak 
or rank. In Exodus, the NIV translates this name as I am who I am, or I am. Moses is told to tell the Israelites that I am has sent him. It's a very peculiar name in Hebrew because it only consists of four letters, which translates to the English letters of Y-H-W-H. So as you'll notice, um, there's no vowels. In this case, Y does not count. So it's a very tricky name to translate to English. For a long time, we thought that it was pronounced Jehovah because there was no letter Y in Latin, so they translated it to a J because the J kind of, in Latin, made the sound that Y does in English. Um, but as time went on, that kind of changed to a J sound, and so then it ended up being Jehovah. But through early Greek and Hebrew translations from the period, we have been able to determine that the name was actually pronounced closer to Yahweh. Now, because Hebrew is such a peculiar language, there are multiple translations to be taken for the meaning of this word. And in this case, they're all very applicable to the nature of God. It can be taken to mean, I am, I was, and I will be. The longer phrase, I am who I am, can be translated as, I will be with you. But it can also be translated as, I am without equal. Now, I'm telling you all of these things because as we begin this new series, I Am, I want you to understand fully the importance of these statements that Jesus makes. Because with every one of them, Jesus not only reveals something about his character and his mission, he also claims to be God. Anyone who tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God does not know what they are talking about. It's why after Jesus said, before Abraham was I am, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him to death. Because in Judaism, saying that was a clear claim that he was God. So, as we're shifting from Philippians to this new series, we're shifting uh, literary types in the Bible. So we're shifting from uh, expository teaching or a letter being written to a community to a narrative in the Gospels. So this is a story, which means it's very important, it's extra important for us to understand where we are in the story each week. Because every time we come in, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a Gospel story. So this week we're reading John 6, 25-59. So before we do that, I want to give a little context on what was happening the previous day before our passage begins. So the day before, Jesus had been preaching to a crowd near, we think, Bethsaida, and he'd fed 5,000 people there miraculously. They thought he was the Messiah, but in a political sense, so they tried to make him king by force. So he fled, and his disciples got to a boat that night, and then they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Halfway across, Jesus came to them walking on water. And so you may have heard that story before. So once he gets into the boat, they come to shore to, in the town of Capernaum. So on this map, you'll see way up at the top right is Bethsaida. It's just this little top of the Sea of Galilee they're crossing here, somewhere around Bethsaida over to Capernaum. Now meanwhile, the next day, after they'd already gotten across, a bunch of people from Tiberias down here had come for over to where he was preaching the other day, where he'd fed the crowds, looking for him, but he wasn't there anymore. So then the entire crowd, all the people who'd been there and all the people who came from Tiberias got in their boats and they all crossed over to Capernaum. So 
We don't know how many people that was, but it was probably a lot of boats. Everyone at this point knows that Jesus is doing these miracles. Everyone wants to know where he is. They want to see what's happening for themselves. There are all these people chasing him around, trying to see these miracles with their own eyes. So we come to Capernaum in this story, and when they got there, they found him in the synagogue. And that's where this story takes place. This is an actual picture of the actual synagogue in Capernaum uh, that's been excavated. I'm assuming they had a roof back then. Um, but you can kind of visualize this story taking place uh, as we go through this story. So with that, let's jump in. It is a bit of a longer passage, so we're going to kind of split it up and, and piece through it rather than read through it all at the beginning. So starting in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So the first thing I want you to notice here is this truly, truly phrase, or very, tr very truly, or if you have NIV, it might say, I tell you the truth. Uh, this is something called the double amen, and Jesus uses it a lot throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, it always announces a critical truth from Jesus to the audience. So whenever he says truly, truly, or very truly, or I tell you the truth, uh, not just this week, but through all our statements, I want you to think this is important. This is something that they needed to hear, and it's something that I need to hear too. Now what he says here is an immediate criticism. All they did was ask when he got there. He ignores their question and hits on the heart of why they were looking for him in the first place. Many of them had either seen or heard of his miracles in Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000. They'd eaten the free meal, and they wanted more. They wanted a show. But Jesus says, while they saw the miracles, they didn't see the signs. In John, whenever you see the word sign, it's something that points beyond the physical reality to the reality of revelation, of things to come. Signs provided insight into who Jesus was and what his mission was. And they missed it. So he says they saw the miracles, but they didn't see what the miracles meant. Verses 28 to 34, then they asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So then they asked, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, and here it is again, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. So they kind of missed the point again here. Um, they are so focused on the miracles and getting this meal. All they are hearing is bread, food. <laughs> and they're just waiting for Jesus to say, here you go. 
And so they're like, great, a bread that we can eat and we'll never be hungry again. The true bread. So, great, let's, let's have some. <laughs> now, of course, they're also focused on the works here. The crowd was Jewish, so uh, their faith was very deeply interconnected with works and following commands. Uh, so, you see here, what is the works that we do? What do we need to do to receive the bread? And the other John of the Gospel, he often plays um, between working and believing when it comes to salvation. That's probably something we'll see more as well. Uh, so on the, on the one hand, you cannot earn salvation by working for it. We know that to be true. On the other hand, faith demands action. Both believing and obeying are parallel ways that we acknowledge our dependence, not on ourselves, but on God to save us. Just as Jesus always responded to God the Father, we are to respond to the Son, the work is to believe here. But of course, they completely misunderstood his meaning. He's already at this point in this story, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the bread that comes from heaven, true bread that gives life to the world. But they're still thinking about a free meal. They demand a miracle to back up his claim, even though many of them had been there the previous day for the feeding of the 5,000. So it's pretty bold to ask for another miracle to prove his authenticity. And then in verse 35, we come to this first I am statement. Because they weren't getting it. So then he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. As always, we are very fortunate to have the full picture uh, coming into these stories today. Uh, we understand these things that Jesus says, but they didn't. And so sometimes you can almost get frustrated with crowds as they're responding to these stories by Jesus. You wonder how they could just not see it. It's so clear, but it wasn't for them. So Jesus corrects their misunderstanding with his first I am statement. And this is a two-pronged answer for Jesus. Uh, first of all, he's saying that he's not talking about physical bread. He is the bread of life. Filling their stomachs with baked goods was not his concern or intention on that day. It was not what he was planning to do. The second thing is that if they came to him for this bread of life, if they came to him for him, they would not have to be concerned with temporary things anymore, like what to eat or drink, because they would have the promise of eternal life. As always, Jesus is concerned with the eternal, not the temporary. The focus here, the point, is that physical bread sustains physical life, but Jesus is the bread of spiritual life. 
He sustains and provides spiritual nourishment. Those who come to him for this bread will not be turned away. In fact, they will have eternal life and a resurrection. Now, they didn't get it before, and they certainly don't get it now. John 6, 41 says, At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent them draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, truly, truly, the one who believes has eternal life. Then he repeats himself, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread, that's the third time he says this, that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So they're still confused, of course, but they, they're finally at least starting to focus on the real issues here instead of whether or not they're going to get a free meal. They, they don't get hung up on that now. Now they get hung up on Jesus saying that he'd come down from heaven. We have to remember this is not a big area. Everyone knew everybody. I feel like a, a similar comparison would be, I don't know, Barry saying, I came down from heaven. You could say, well, we, we know you. Like, you've been here for years. <laughs> like, how can you say that? Like, we all know who you are. But the point here is that Jesus wasn't there to make friends. He was ruffling feathers. And he makes it a little worse here. You can't, Sometimes you can't help but wonder when you're reading if Jesus doesn't kind of enjoy... Um, mixing things up a little bit and, and making people angry. <laughs> because he says, everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. What he's insinuating here to a group of devoted Jews is that if they actually know God the Father, if they actually have a relationship with him, they will recognize Jesus is who he says he is. And by um, just logicking off that, if they don't accept him, then they must not have truly known him after all. So that's a pretty bold statement. And then he says it again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And I kind of want to hang up there for a minute on uh, this bread is my flesh. So again, remember, they don't have the full picture like we do. All they know is this guy is saying that everyone who wants eternal life has to eat his flesh. His, they have to take part in this bread. He is the bread. The bread is his flesh. And if they want eternal life, they have to eat that bread. That's what they're hearing. So considering they don't have any context like we do, um, that's pretty heavy to take. <laughs> And we see that here in this next passage. 
He says, then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then it says that he said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So instead of clarifying, he digs in and even heightens it. He doesn't clarify the metaphor for the crowns. Um, again, like I said, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know what we know now. All they know is that this guy from a town, they know his parents. Uh, he's out saying that he came down from heaven and that people have to eat him to be saved. So you can imagine that uh, he lost a few followers that day. <laughs> Uh, a lot of Jews were in the crowd. Uh, they interpret this too literally. It even says that a lot of his disciples left him after this. And even the twelve in his inner circle struggled with this teaching. They said this is a hard teaching to accept. Because they didn't understand yet. Now we have the perspective after of seeing the whole big picture. Uh, but for them they struggled with this. But the metaphor here, the, the, the being the bread of life... It, eating his flesh and drinking his blood equals believing and partaking in a relationship with Jesus. And of course, it's also very reminiscent and reflective of communion, which we now celebrate. Uh, in fact, uh, in the first century, one of the big reasons that Romans hated Christianity was because of all the mystery around communion. They didn't understand what it was, and they thought that we were practicing cannibalism. And they didn't like that. So that was one of the big reasons why they didn't like Christianity in the first century. And to that day, too, it sounded like cannibalism. They didn't understand. And so many people left him after he taught this. Okay, so you obviously, I'm sure, have noticed that as we're going through this passage, there was a ton of confusion between Jesus and his audience. They didn't understand what he was saying, but... Some of the same problems are present for us today, even though we have the full picture, even though we, we can see all the things in Scripture and the whole context, we still have a lot of the same issues to work through. So what should we take away from this? Well, the crowd couldn't see what he was trying to tell them because they were too focused on earthly, temporary things. Jesus said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. They weren't chasing that food. They were chasing miracles. They wanted a free meal. They were too focused on the literal and physical now to see that Jesus was talking about their spiritual future. They had blinders on. They knew what they wanted, and they were trying to get it. So how are we focused on the immediate and temporary instead of our spiritual futures and eternity? 
Do we have blinders on too? Have we decided what it is that we are to get out of our relationship with Jesus? And we're not open to what he's wanting to give us. Jesus told him that he was the bread of life, spiritual bread. To receive it, we have to do two things. First, we have to believe in him. And that is what he describes as the work of God in this passage. And if we do, if we believe in him, he will meet our spiritual needs, and he will raise us up on the last day. The crowd was hungry. They wanted more free food. But Jesus says, I am here to satisfy, but not your stomachs. I'm here to satisfy your souls. But they wanted to fill their stomachs more than their souls. So do we trust Jesus to meet our spiritual needs? Are we asking him to fill our spiritual needs? Or are we only focused on our temporary physical needs? Are we allowing him to fulfill our lives? And the second thing we have to do is participate. It's not merely enough to know that something is true. What are you going to do about it? Jesus begins by saying that they had to believe, yes. But then he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And that's something that you have to do. You have to take part. Uh, so those who ate manna in the desert eventually died. But those who partake in Jesus will live forever. Those who join him in his death and resurrection will be with him in eternity. So the second question is, are we participating in his kingdom? Are we finding our satisfaction and fulfillment in Jesus? You see, these people in the crowd were so concerned with temporary worries and pleasures in life that they weren't, they weren't thinking about what truly lasts. They were so focused on the miracles that they were missing the signs that Jesus was giving. Jesus was revealing himself to them. He was revealing the gospel but they were focused on the food. They were so excited to fill their stomachs with physical bread that they didn't realize they could fill their souls with the bread of life, which is Jesus. Jesus is the source of perfect spiritual fulfillment. He is the bread of life. So, in conclusion, in the words of Jesus, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. The things of this world, they don't last. And we're all chasing wonders and signs in life. Sometimes, uh, like the, the crowd that day in the synagogue, we can be guilty of trying to, to use God like a vending machine in order to get what we want in pursuit of what we think will fulfill us. But he doesn't want to give us a free meal he wants to fill our lives with him. We are chasing things. We think we know what we need, but Jesus is all we need to sustain our lives. We look for food to nourish our bodies, but he is offering food and nourishment for our souls. He is the source of perfect spiritual fulfillment. He is the bread that gives true life. And as we leave here this week, it's my hope that day to day, we would turn to him for fulfillment and nourishment and not other places. 
It's my hope that we would be ready to share that bread of life with the world that is starving for him. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your son. And I thank you that he is with you. He is one with you. And I just thank you that he is the bread that gives us true life. I just ask that you would help us to turn to him whenever we are in need or lacking. That we would turn to him whenever we feel like we need fulfillment or contentment. And that we would not turn other places. I just ask that as we go into the world this week, you would help us to to know this truth, to live this truth, and to share this truth with others who are also in need of fulfillment in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.